Do you believe in alternate universes? You are listening to Delayed Replay. The Improvised Movie Review Podcast. Wink. Everything is fine here. We're all fine. Just sit tight and listen to them talk about the movies they definitely saw. Don't delay. Don't delay. We have to listen right away. Hello, listeners. This is Steven Schinder, and you're listening to Delayed Replay, the movie review podcast. And on this episode, we have an interesting topic from a franchise that's been around for a long time. We're talking about No Time to Die. That's right, the James Bond movie that came out in April. And on this episode, I have a very special guest whose name is Coffee. Joe Coffee. <laughs> hey, Stephen, how are you? Very good. Now, for those not familiar, you have a James Bond podcast of your own. Is that correct? Yes, it's called Bond with Coffee. It uh, started out as a project uh, with my family. We love James Bond. We've seen them all. So we thought, hey, why don't we start with Dr. No and do a podcast where every episode we just talk about the film, praise it, poke fun of it, all of the above. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's kind of what we do on this podcast too. Like praise, pick fun at um, like all that stuff, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> and you've done the uh, first four films so far. Yes, we're about to start doing two or three per week. We had a bit of a, a dip in uh, productivity, but yeah, so far the first four are out and. The fifth one will be coming out soon. Yeah, those were really fun to listen to as well as watch because they're also available on video. So, yeah, it's really cool. And what are your overall experiences with the James Bond franchise as a whole? Like, how'd you get into it? What has that been your overall experiences with it? So, I was born in 71. So, I remember being at the movies. Uh, in the late 70s and in and, and 80s where, um, you know, trailers for other films are on and there was this awareness of uh, Roger Moore as James Bond. And, you know, there were some really bad Roger Moore films. And, you know, if he's running across alligator heads or whatever, I mean, some of the <laughs> the ridiculous things in some of his films uh, were kind of part of my first experience. You know, by the time you get to college and, and you're renting movies from Blockbuster, you know, and you're digging back into the canon to get caught up on everything, I realized, oh my gosh, uh, these, these, uh, Sean Connery films are even better than the, than the chopped up versions that they showed uh, on UHF reruns, you know? So, uh, by the time, you know, you could get box sets of all the films up to whatever point you bought it at, it was so much fun to just watch an old bond film. And so, um, I've brought that into my family. I've got two daughters one's a senior in college and one's a senior in high school and they have both seen them all at least two or three times because of this thing that uh, I love to do and say hey who's who's up for a bond you pick you know what are you feeling are you feeling Dalton or Brosnan or maybe Lazenby and you know the, the girls will pick one and we'll watch it and that that's a fun evening for us so um they never get old I, I love to go back and watch them over and over I always see new things I've never seen before Nice. The way I came into it was different. I remember as a kid, so 
I was born in 94, and I think when I was like seven or eight or maybe nine or ten, I don't know, childhood blends together. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But I remember at some point, uh, my cousins had a Nintendo 64, and I think they had the GoldenEye video game. I think that's Mm. what it might have been. And so I was familiar with like 007 because it was on the cartridge but i didn't know the james bond name per se i just knew this as like a game where you go around in a building and try shooting opponents i i didn't know what the (laughs) actual premise of it is or who i was playing as and Mm -hmm. i think it was in 2012 when there's this one channel in the like channel 300 something and they were having like a james bond movie marathon and i was like eh, might as well watch them just to see it say that i've seen them all and so <laughs> and so i saw the 20 eon films that were part of the same continuity so connery to brosnan and then mm-hmm. the daniel craig films like the first two and because skyfall hadn't come out yet but Mm-hmm. At some point later, when it was on DVD, I rented it, and I later rented Spectre. Uh, mm-hmm. I also saw, within that same marathon, I think, there was uh, Never Say Never Again, the one where Sean Connery's older, and it's a remake of Thunderball. I saw that one. Yes. And I also saw this weird one from the 60s that was by a different company it was called casino royale but it had yes lots of different actors playing james bond have you ever seen that it one? was weird yeah yeah I, I think it even predated the idea of james bond being played by multiple actors that we've gotten so used to like other than yeah. this 50s tv movie or something where it was like an American version of Casino Royale. I haven't seen that, but it's weird to think yeah. about. Yeah, th- those are, you, you mentioned two of the weirder things in, in the catalog, and I guess they're considered unofficial. But, you know, there, the, the rights were cleared. And, you know, the, the backstory about uh, Fleming's ownership and who he said could write a screenplay and, uh, you know, Connery making a, a comeback. Uh, uh, you know, th- there was there were weird things going on with those movies. And you you hear in interviews, uh, the Broccoli's and, and the v- various people from Eon Productions, they, they like to act like those never existed, but they are out there uh, for us <laughs> to kind of poke with a stick and say, what is this? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like the I don't know how good of a comparison this is, but it's kind of like how the Star Wars holiday special is a thing or this yeah. <laughs> really old 10 minute animated version of the hobbit that's almost nothing like the book is out there somewhere (laughs) that's right (laughs) the mysteries of the franchise it's so weird what's out there but (laughs) thankfully um we're talking about a more comfortable movie to talk about no time to die the most recent movie how was the theater crowd when you saw it there were People in uh, tuxedos, you know, I guess uh, that's cosplay as far as you can get really uh, for James Bond. And, uh, you know, there's a hype about new Bond films. And so uh, I I felt the energy. Uh, I didn't have to wait in line. I got my tickets ahead of time. But, you know, the seat 
every seat was a uh, body in it. The place was packed and I, I found it rather exciting. Uh, I, I tend to go to these, uh, you know, big premieres on, on the big day, not the premiere, but the, the opening day. And uh, it was just like all the others. Everybody there was stoked. Obviously a big uh, James Bond fan. Yeah, I, I saw a couple of cosplayers when I went to see it. I went the morning after it premiered because, like, I just got super tired, like, the night of, and very, very few movies where I'll do, like, the premiere night thing, even though they've, like, moved it up from, like, 7 or 8 p.m. instead of, like, midnight. Now it's, it's like, the midnight thing isn't even a thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there is a downside. I, I think I missed a few jokes and a little little dialogue because uh the the theater was so lively it was uh laughing in three spots and even cheered in one spot and i i think i missed some dialogue but you know i guess that's the give and take when you go uh on on the opening day like it kind of has two sides to it like on one hand you're with an enthusiastic crowd and you can feel the energy but on the other hand it's like can we can i please hear the movie you know (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) I guess we'll just dive into like the beginning of this movie. Like we got the, I think this might be the longest cold open that a James Bond movie has ever had is like 25 minutes, which I guess is supposed to match how this is a 25th Eon film. Ah, okay. Yeah. I was wondering it. Yeah, it is. It is a long one. It, uh, it, it goes on and on, but reminded me of, uh, the cold open on from Russia with love with the, the, the training camp and someone is portraying bond and you think it's him for a moment, uh, but it, but it's not. And so I, I, I found it gripping. I like it when as an audience member, I can't predict what's, what's happening. And after watching so many bond films that that could be hard to do, but yeah, this cold open, I went from being uh, excited to confused to kind of figuring it out, to being double-crossed by my own initial thoughts, and then the resolution, here comes you know, the title sequence. I, I, I thought it was great. I've never seen a cold open like that before. Yeah, because we do begin with some MI6 agents being trained, and then they get into this conversation, like talking about the legend James Bond, and you're thinking, well, wait, where is James Bond? And then we see that he's at this lake house with uh, madeline swan who it seems like they're married in this and have settled down like with within a few years after specter which i thought was an interesting choice yeah it's uh i i guess it's not tired because it's just part of it but when when bond is on a rogue mission or he's retired or injured and and there's this whole thing about will he come back will he get another assignment and oh wow like um there's uh the love interest from the previous film because you know sometimes you show up and you have no idea if it's going to be clean slate or if things are going to continue and i i guess when they did the clean reboot with uh casino royale in 2006 and they alluded to some henchmen and bad guys from the previous films it was like oh okay this is how they're going to restart so yeah uh dr swan at, at the lake house um I, I thought, okay, you know, and, and it makes sense because we never did fully understand uh, w- what happened in, in the last film. And we, you know, we understand her dad, but there were just so many loose ends. So um, 
yeah, it's uh, what a way to start it. You know, you immediately have to be like, okay, I'm getting caught up. Oh yeah, this is what's going on. Yeah. And it seems like they're living a peaceful life, but then Swan gets something in the mail and it's this mask, which I guess is supposed to look like a no type of mask. And uh, for those unfamiliar, no is a Japanese form of dance theater. And this is something that the villain who we see much later wears. And after that happens, like she's visibly scared. And then we see some assassins on jet skis out on the lake while James is like on his boat and he has to like defend the place and like make sure they don't get to his wife. You know, I immediately thought about the the symbology of no theater and how, you know, those cypress carved masks are supposed to be expressionless. But the beauty in how they're made when when the actor on stage holds the the mask or, or his head or neck in a certain way at different angles, those masks can look like they're smiling or laughing or frowning. And it's so there are all these subtle things about that mask, but it's supposed to be based on, you know, an immediate presumption of zero emotion. So setting the tone for this film, I thought, wow, you know, and, and they've always said of all the bonds, you know, Daniel Craig, he's the rough and tumble one and he, he's not falling on emotion through his acting. He's, he's a stunt guy. And he, what he brought to the, to the screen, the screenwriters ever since his first one have been playing off of that. So, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to overthink sometimes, but that's, that's where my mind went when I saw the no mask. I thought that was cool. Yeah, and I kind of like how um, much later in the movie, they kind of nickname the villain Dr. No because of this mask. That was like a fun little Easter egg. I reference. caught that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the first Bond film from 1962. Uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Which was also, interestingly enough, Dr. No, that villain was supposed to be half Asian in that film. And so there are a lot of uh, through lines in this with some of the portrayals in this film, as well as the director of the film, who is the first American director and also of Japanese American heritage. So, yeah, some neat through lines. Uh, as soon as the, the no mask appears, things started to come together. Yeah. And the villain's name is... Safin, but we'll get to him later. I, just real quick, like right before recording this, I was thinking about how like delayed replay as an acronym looks like doctor, so DR. And mm. if you put no time to die after that, it's like delayed replay, no time to die. But if it's DR, it, it looks like doctor no within that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is episode seven of the podcast or like the seventh movie we've talked about so you know 007 i pretty oh, much find that <laughs> nice <laughs> love it yeah i'm hesitant to call it episode 007 because i don't know if i'll ever want to get to triple digits but you know the seven is in there <laughs> <laughs> that's cool the sequence on the lake is 
really cool. And because I've had a, a little bit of a phobia of being in like deep water growing up, I could kind of feel the tension as Bond and these assassins were fighting and they were trying to drown each other. But of course, Bond has to come out on top because like there's a whole rest of the movie that he has to be in. Yeah, and I was wondering about that, almost waiting for someone to take off the Daniel Craig mask and we see that it, it was, you know, just another Spectre training exercise. But, uh, I, you know, as far as the water, you know, the, the chase scene on the jet skis and, and when, when they dipped underwater for just a bit and the fist fight broke out, I, I had to laugh because I thought of Thunderball, <laughs> the the underwater fights and the ridiculous sound effects that you would never actually hear in an underwater fight. You know, they, they were just as ridiculous. I mean, it was thrilling. It worked. It wasn't like Benny Hill slapstick, but yeah, guys underwater punching and you hear, oh my God, I, I love it. It's, uh, it's so bad. It's good, but they pulled it off. I, I think they pulled it off and, uh, you know, the, the scene was dramatic. Yeah. I kind of like when franchises that have been going on this long, like they sometimes have to go through a more grounded and gritty phase to like appeal to some of the crowd, right? But I think it's nice when they yeah. weave in some of the more campy, over the top stuff as like a reminder of like, oh yeah, there was this campier stuff that some of the fans enjoyed. So we'll try to strike a balance. Yeah. And I think most of the theater got it when um, he emerged from the water after the fight. And it, it reminded me a couple of times some Bond women in the franchise emerged from the water uh, in a very salacious kind of way, uh, kind of hearkening back, quoting the other films. You know, Halle Berry did it last. And so when I saw that, I thought, oh, wow, I thought we'd have five more films before we'd quote that scene again. But, uh, you know, another nice uh, throwback to some of the older films. Oh, wow. I didn't even make that connection, but you're right. <laughs> So yeah, he um after he defeats them, he like gets to Madeline and he's like, We have to leave and that's when we go into the opening credit sequence with the No Time to Die song by Billy Elish, which I think is very hauntingly beautiful. It's a great track. I would agree. There's there's something about the way that song moves. There's a lot of uncertainty in it, but as it starts to take shape and get dramatic, you you, you can't really find singers like the early Bond films, you know, with with Goldfinger and some of those massive, huge vocal performances. So now it seems like these title sequence soundtrack cuts, they're always very dramatic, starting with the most recent Casino Royale and, you know, Chris Cornell, his voice. I, I think this is the first time we saw this. And so, yeah, the, the No Time to Die follows suit in that it's it's dramatic and it isn't really a hook like you know for your eyes only something you'll actually hear on the charts and go to number one but it works for the scene and the cinematography i thought it was really good and, it, and if i'm sure you caught some of this too some of the lyrics matched up really well with like the silhouettes and, and swimming underwater and, and and the guns and uh you know, even when she says we were a pair, but I saw you there too much to bear. Call me crazy, but I swear one of those silhouettes looked like the shape of a bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was synced very well. <laughs> there are even several seconds where it showed 
like I guess it was like a little homage to those GoldenEye type of games like on N64 where you see like a blocky looking James Bond fighting some sort of adversary. And (laughs) I thought that was a nice touch. And you see the like multiple versions of the no mask stacked on top of each other. And this struck me as something that feels like it might have been an homage, but like an homage to an homage. Because I don't know if you've ever seen the 1990s uh, 3D animated show reboot. No. Okay, so it's about characters who live in like a computer system. And they did this episode called Firewall, which basically feels like an homage to James Bond movies, even right down to the long two minute Ah. opening sequence with a similar sounding song, like a Bond sounding song, which is amazing. (laughs) You know, I got to tell you one thing about this song that kind of caught me off guard. I I heard it wrong. You know, sometimes we've we mishear lyrics in a song. When Billy sings that I'd fallen for a lie, I thought she was singing that I'd fallen for a line, which, you know, so many famous lines are associated with James Bond, you know, Bond, James Bond, you know, they're often they're a part of, you know, making the love interest, you know, fall for him. And so I thought that worked so well in the song uh, because, you know, it was on the radio a little bit before the film came out. But it must have been uh, the sound system or more clear or whatever in the theater. I could hear it. And she said that I'd fallen for a lie. And I thought, oh, well, okay. I guess that's the real lyric. It still makes sense. But I think it would have been better if she would have said that I'd fallen for a line. Yeah, I know what you mean about the mishearing lyrics. Like for years, uh, probably about over a decade, I thought that the song... Panama was cannonball like like I've never actually <laughs> looked at the lyrics to the song I've only heard love it. bits of it in movies <laughs> and it just sounded to me like cannonball <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great that's great yeah <laughs> while Bond and Swan are on the run uh, they kind of go to this nightclub looking place and there they're found by a familiar face. Wow, I did not mean for that to rhyme. It's amazing how that happened. <laughs> uh, they're approached by Felix, and he's like, we need you to come back. And this beginning of this movie feels very much like Red Dragon to me, you know, the Hannibal Ooh. Lecter novel. Yeah. And because, yeah. you know, it begins with the main character being like, retired and by water and then he's approached by uh someone from the well cia in this case but fbi and red dragon to like come out of retirement and help and rafe fines who he played the killer in the second film adaptation of red dragon which is just called red dragon and mm-hmm. mass mickelson who played hannibal on the tv show which i've been re-watching it's like one of my favorites he played Le Chief in the 2006 Casino yes. Royale movie. So Yeah, you, I was thinking about that too when uh, Lofeld, when he was behind the, the glass thing, it was so Hannibal Lecter. I mean, my mind went right to that series too. I totally know what you mean. I, I it Surely that was on purpose, right? I mean, that was some classic stuff that uh, to kind of quote those visuals. Uh, I, I thought that was a nice treat. 
Yeah, because they have Blofeld in custody and they're kind of consulting him because they think there's a link between him and Safin, the guy with the no mask, who has abducted this scientist they're looking for. Valdo, right? Yeah, Valdo. Like his last name was Obrechev. So Blofeld is basically doing the Hannibal Lecter thing of not giving them an answer straight away and trying to make them figure it out on their own while kind of giving them clues. But it's clear that there's a connection between him and Safin. Yeah. And, you know, when they had uh, the the CIA uh, gal in this one, Paloma, when she was trying to get info from Blofeld when he was, you know, secured, they didn't they had everything except the little mask on that they had on it. Hannibal Lecter. I mean, there was so much of a similarity between that back and forth. And and here Blofeld having information, Paloma knowing he has it. But, you know, he's speaking in riddles and he's distracting her by he wasn't talking about uh, eating her like a cannibal, but he was <laughs> just the, the way he made her unsettled. It, it was a, a stark uh, similarity to, to those other uh, classic films. Yeah. So for someone like me, who's a huge, uh, I guess, fanable like, I really liked these similarities, but I'm curious, like, what someone like you would think, who's, like, maybe coming in being like, I want to see a James Bond movie. Like, did these, like, similarities feel a bit intrusive, whether intentional or unintentional, or were you okay with them? I was okay with them because they seem serious, but when Bond was rolling around with Dr. Swan... And they seem to be quoting some sex moves from the blue is the warmest color move in that cinematography. I thought, wow, that's a little bit much. You know, yes, we all watch a lot of movies, but yes, we caught that. But that was it just seemed unnecessary. I mean, it was cheeky, funny, but, uh, you know, not as much as in the Roger Moore era. But, um, you know, I guess that is part of the franchise still today. Right. Right. And uh, going back to Blofeld, just real quick, he does this long monologue and what's funny is there's this website called tv tropes which lists various tropes cliches and such used in films books and whatnot and they have like different names for all these types of cliches and the one for like this villain monologue is called hannibal lecture where (laughs) (laughs) where like the villain is doing this like long speech like lecturing the protagonist so (laughs) I thought it was funny that they had Blofeld uh, just chew up the scenery. You know, that's, yeah. It's always in the form of like a little lecture, I think, in in these Bond films. And going all the way back to Dr. No, there's usually a moment where somebody, usually Bond, gets to give a little speech on something. Whether it's the Walter PPK or somebody asks, uh, you know, what do you know about the Fabergé egg market? And then... You know, Bond will just recite like an encyclopedia, you know, summary. And uh, it's interesting to, in this film, have that coming from Blofeld, uh, who had the info and the expertise in in that moment. Yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah, I don't know how he remembers stuff like that. Like like you said, having an encyclopedic mind, it's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we get... Uh, refamiliarized with you know the mainstays m money penny q mm-hmm. 
So it's great to see them again. But we also meet this new double O agent whose name is Nomi. And yeah, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but like her name sounds like Nomi, like get to Nomi. And it felt like, I don't know if it was like a subliminal message that like the audiences should get to know this character because she's going to be really important going forward. But I don't know. It's weird having that and like know me and the no masks, but they're not being like a direct connection. It's, I guess it's like a repeated motif intentional or not. Yeah. They, you know, some of the more ridiculous uh, female names in the series from pussy galore to, you know, I mean, there's a whole long list of them. Um, so w when you learn these new characters names, it's always worth really kind of looking at closely. And I, I think you're right. You know, know me is uh, is what it sounds like. And, and in pop culture, you know, there's that whole you don't know me. Well, actually, Bond gets to know her and it's not the friendly, you know, some other double agent in the field or one who just died and his death will be avenged. Here's a new double O who uh, is going against Bond and is challenging him. And, you know, even a physical tussle and and. uh but she's a female, and so will he go that direction? And um, so Nomi, we, we got to know her, and she was not like we uh, suspected from that first scene. So I, I think the name, I think you're on to something. I, I think that was intentional, and uh, I think that worked well. And I just like that it wasn't quite so over-the-top like Pussy Galore. You know? <laughs> <It was. laughs> yeah, that wouldn't really fly today. <laughs> yeah, I... I... I don't know if you've ever seen the Cats and Dogs movies, but the second one is called The Revenge of Kitty Galore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so after they get a bit of information from Blofeld, they go to Matera in Italy. And mm. this is where they kind of have this fight against a soldier named Primo. Yeah, what did you think of that whole sequence? Well, I like the part. When Bond, you know, he takes his licks in a fight, he, he gets hit a few times and then he hits people. And when he got hit in the cheek and that guy was wearing his specter ring. And so the, the, when the octopus imprint stayed on his cheek for just a second, I, I thought that was great. I thought, you know, and it's in the middle of all the action, there was that one little moment of. Oh, did you catch that? You know, but it went by so fast. They didn't stay on the shot so long. It was like overdone. But I, I, I thought that was fun. You know, it, it kind of reminded me in the middle of, you know, I mean, the action has evolved so much in the fighting. And it's, I mean, the brute force of it in, in a theater, the subwoofers and then the bass low sound. I mean, it was just so much going on. And right in the middle of it, here's this gleaming little bling imprint of the octopus on his cheek. I, I thought that was fun. It kind of kept it real because uh, I think the series needs that. Some of these fight scenes are so intense. It, it almost gets away from one of the things they figured out by the third or fourth film. And that is kids were 50% of the audience. You know, you have to keep it fun for the whole family. And uh, the Daniel Craig Bond fights have been so intense. You know, uh, they need that balance. Those other moments. Yeah, it felt very intense. Like, yeah, that whole thing on the bridge. And it was really thrilling. Um, I think for me... Sometimes it can be kind of tough because depending on how the action is cut, it can feel a bit disorienting and I'm not always sure what's happening. 
So I did struggle to keep up a little bit, but I was still really into it. I guess it helped that the score that went along to these scenes was really good. Yeah, and I, I love Hans Zimmer, so um, I'm kind of an old school guy. Uh, I, I love the score from the early films, but yeah, Hans Zimmer, he's like a chameleon. I don't care what film it is. He has this way of working with the action, and, and you think about the music when it's really well done, but it, it's not so well done and, and overplayed to where it distracts. Right, like it doesn't dominate the film. It, it complements it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, one of the rules, and I think it's almost like the, the James Bond bingo card we all have in our laps when we watch a new Bond film. We're, we're waiting for things so we can X the box, right? We're waiting for Bond, James Bond, X, you know, <laughs> and, and all the shaken, not stirred. And, and so one of the things on, on the card for me is, uh, well, one, you know, for everybody is uh, the James Bond theme, of course. And they went uh, almost a decade once uh, with no films using that music. They wanted to get away from it, and that made it cool when they went back to it, right? But there's another theme from the first three films uh, called the 007 theme. You know, and there's a way to where it's kind of cheesy. Uh, the, the music orchestration involves piccolos and it's just a wacky sounding uh, theme. But it, it was always used during fight, so uh, fight scenes. Yeah. And so I kept waiting for it in this film. But nope, they didn't press that button. They kept that one in the vault for this one anyway. <laughs> yeah, I guess when I originally marathoned like, all 20 something films it didn't occur to me that there was like a decade without that theme you mentioned i guess because i was watching them all closely together so it makes sense that watching them as they come out or like even long durations in between renting different films like it would definitely stand yeah. out oh yeah yeah and it's uh, it's it's part of the classic stuff, you know, and I think uh, I guess every now and then they have to get away from something to make sure it's not completely overdone. But um, yeah, I enjoy when the James Bond theme comes up. I enjoy it. And if you listen carefully to No Time to Die, uh, Billy's uh, theme song, uh, musically, they, they quote some things from the James Bond theme and they, they even have the echoey guitar. It's, it's like a counter melody. I'm trying to remember like after the second verse and then again uh, as the chorus, last chorus is winding down, they, they hit the spy chord, you know, and so there's some of those touches in there. I thought that was cool. Yeah, for sure. Like when are we going to get another Batman movie that has some sort of homage to the 1960s shows thing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like just a modernized version. Like, I think that'd be really cool. <laughs> Oh my God, I love it. What a great idea. I mean, may maybe they can't go as far as the boom, pow, zap things, but it, at least the tightrope walking side, you know, turn the camera on its side and walking past and then in the cameos where somebody sticks their head out as they're climbing the wall. Oh my God, that would be so great. <laughs> yeah, the, the other day, my friend was telling me about this villain from the 60s Batman show. Like I've only seen... I remember seeing a few episodes as a kid and a few more at some point during college. Like I haven't gone through the entire show, but I want to at some point. Cause, oh, yeah. cause I feel like I'm at that age where like when I was a preteen, I wanted like dark and gritty, but I'm at that age where I'm appreciating the more comedic and campier stuff now. So I want to get through that whole series at some point. But my friend told me about this villain named 
Egghead, who yes. was played by Vincent Price. Vincent and, Price. And made <laughs> egg-related puns, and it's like... Excellent. Oh, yeah. every Everything he said had an egg. It was great. Uh, and and he, had, he had his head was white and bald like an egg he had a bald uh, cap on and it was oh it was it was classic I, I remember egghead was one of my favorite villains on that show <laughs> yeah and like speaking as someone who loves making puns and who's like delved into a lot of batman mythology i'm like sitting thinking to myself have i never heard of this villain this sounds amazing <laughs> Well, I'm with you. I, I think I need to sit down with that series. It's been, oh gosh, forever since I've seen it. So it'll all be fresh on my eyes again. Except I did cheat once. Somebody sent me a link to the climb the rope sideways camera on the wall. On YouTube, somebody made like a master mix compilation of all of those from that series when they would climb the rope sideways. And, uh, and people's heads, you know, celebrities would pop their heads out and have a little cameo. There's a great mix on YouTube if, if you want to search that out. It's it's fun. It's like 12 minutes. There were a lot of cameos in that show. <laughs> yeah, like I saw the montage of all the egg puns he made in season two that my friend sent me. <laughs> I'll probably link all these in the show notes, like all these YouTube things we're mentioning. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, the mid-60s were an interesting time, like, we had th that, we had Star Trek, the original series, and the first few Bond films. Like, it's crazy to think about, like, how far these things have come. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think there's something cool about uh, villains and, and how I, I think the James Bond series taught us uh, the films you, you mentioned from, from the 60s. You know, a good Bond villain, villain from the 60s, you know, uh, Dr. No, uh, the, the, the first time we saw Blofeld, you know, there were two films where we just saw him petting the cat before we got to see his face and the obsessions, you know, Goldfinger, like that dude loved gold. Like, <laughs> you know, the best Bond villains, I think, aren't, aren't the evil ones. It's, it's the ones that are just completely obsessed with something. Yeah. I, I love the sixties Bond villains. Yeah. Served for a pretty good inspiration for stuff like Austin Powers and Johnny English. Oh man, it it does ruin some of the rewatches of old uh, <laughs> Bond films because I, I I think of the the Austin Powers riffs when I'm watching the source material. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird how that happens, but um, I don't know. I guess it's a case by case basis because I've seen Spaceballs a couple times, but it's never ruined my star wars watching experience if anything like i didn't find Spaceballs to be really that funny i'm probably in the minority but i mean no, yeah I, I know what you mean yeah i i love brooks and and rick moranis but yeah a lot of it was funny because you get the joke because we've seen star wars so many times but at the same time i'll, I'll realize i even though i like that i'm not laughing out loud <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's something you watch at least once just to get the references, like why people are saying these quotes in these threads and yeah. what it means. But yeah. <laughs> so getting back to No Time to Die. <laughs> there's also this CIA agent named Logan Ash who orders a pursuit of Bond. And I was kind of confused about this because I was like, wait, Me too. like. Aren't they like on the same side? But I guess like Logan Ash is in cahoots with Safin, which was quite a surprise. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a move from the old films. You know, they used to do that every time they'd reintroduce Felix Leiter. Like you, we didn't know who was chasing Bond in the car, you know, for 10 minutes. And then we later learn, you know, oh, that's the CIA guy. And so there was there was some of that that had me confused. I, I, I knew he was CIA, but I had no idea that uh, he was working with Safine. And, you know, because of the way the last film involved the entire British Secret Service uh, getting changed and, and the guy who's changing it is in cahoots, you know, with Blofeld, I, I thought, oh, well, they should probably wait a while before we have another, you know, double agent defector kind of situation. But um, yeah, yeah. With with Logan Ash, it, I was confused for a good five minutes before uh, that revelation. Yeah. And we do eventually get the backstory for Safine. Like, like it's really interesting because he says that he likes wearing the mask every now and then because people wear a mask anyway, whether they realize it or not. Like, whenever you're talking with someone, you'll act a certain way to conform to their sensibilities, and you'll try to, um, I guess, camouflage and try to blend in. And, like, how he, like basically felt like he wanted to embrace his disfigurement in order to justify wearing the mask every now and then. And it's it's kind of weird because lots of villains have these disfigurements, but I kind of wish there were more heroes who had disfigurements because like not everyone who has disfigurements is, is a bad person, you know? I, I love your point. Uh, well, well said. There, there is a problem uh, in, in film and especially in the Bond series where antagonists usually have some form of disability and it, it perpetuates uh, society othering people. You know, when we other uh, as a verb, when we other people, it's usually because we don't understand their their plight, their identity, their disability or whatever. And so, you know, every time a Bond villain has a hook for a hand or is missing an eye or you know, has a big, massive scar. And so they're treated bad by society. And that led them to the evil ways. You know, I always feel like, ah, come on, that's that's a little overdone. But the scene you reference where he was, uh, Safine was explaining the the identity. I, I was blown away by the writing in, in that because I think there were four different screenwriters on this film. Like that scene when they talked about identity, Irving Goffman, there's this sociologist that, that they were playing on who, who basically said, he wrote this book called uh, the, the Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And, and what Goffman's theory was is that, you know, when you put on this persona for the world, you're, you're you know, it's under receiver, like you're sending out me, like I could put on a cowboy hat. But Goffman said, just because me, a half Japanese guy, puts on a cowboy hat and boots, I can walk down the street and what I'm sending, cowboy, isn't necessarily received. It might be received as, why is the Asian guy wearing cowboy boots? And, you know, it's, so that when Bond's response to Safine's, you know, soliloquy there about identity, when he, Bond revealed himself, quoted Goffman to say, you know what, the identity you're putting out isn't necessarily the one we're receiving. I was blown away. I thought, okay, kudos, screenwriters. That was great. And, and they're actually quoting sociologists, you know, in a Bond film. How cool was that? Yeah, that was such an amazing moment. Like, it, it didn't register that they were quoting something as specific as that. But I read articles about it after seeing the movie because, well, like, this was the first 
Bond movie where I was really like that made me want to delve into like all the influences and stuff. So that was pretty neat. We should talk about Rami though, uh, as an actor playing Safine. Um, I'm sure you saw the Freddie Mercury portrayal in, in that movie. And I kind of, I, I haven't even seen that much that he's done, but going from Freddie Mercury to Safine, holy cow, does, does Rami Malek have some range? I mean, he is a great actor, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I actually haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody yet. I've been meaning oh, okay. to, but I've heard that he did really well as Freddie Mercury. I have seen him in this show called, uh, I think it was called Mr. Nobody. And he has some pretty good range in that too, I think. Cool. Yeah. I'm, I, he's on my list now. Anything he's in, I, I will go see. I, I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. I think not at the museum. I saw him and come to think of it. <laughs> Oh, I don't remember. I have seen that with my kids, but I don't remember. Uh, I must have walked out for a moment. What what character was he in, not at the museum? He played the pharaoh. That was leader. him. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Holy cow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think me and my brother also saw him on a sitcom uh, either before or after that. But yeah, he, he's been in a bunch of things. Cool. Yeah, he's. I think he's going to continue to uh, get bigger and better roles. He's he's something else. Yeah, for sure. And so the reason that Safin kidnapped uh, Valdo, the scientist, was because he wanted to make this weapon that inflicts people worldwide, so that he, like he wants to make everyone obtain burns and scars, so that they'll also have to conform to wearing. A mask like he loves to do and so they're really trying to take him down and uh save Voldo, get him out of Safine's hands you know when they tested the weapon on the street sweeper who was just standing there eating a piece of pizza and and all of a sudden he's dead and i i see why they <laughs> why they <laughs> they wrote that in they had to demonstrate it but man that was brutal yeah i felt sorry for that street sweeper and i i already see online that some people are making these fan fiction stories where he gets away like it turns out he's like a wizard with a broom and that the explosion <laughs> missed him <laughs> it's just ridiculous oh my gosh that's great yeah but yeah that was pretty brutal it reminded me of rogue one and the whole death star test and it's oh yeah it's pretty tragic like testing something like that on like especially seeing like an innocent person who's like not even part of this whole war espionage thing like he's not in mi6 or cia or uh, specter he's just some ordinary street sweeper trying to eat pizza <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i wasn't sure if if you know that was just funny and he was going to scamper away but when they showed his head rolling down the street i was like oh wow okay they're that's that was brutal. Yeah, it was pretty intense. <laughs> there, there's also this really suspenseful scene on the frozen lake where they're where Bond is fighting Safine, and like he falls, like Bond falls through the cracks and into the water, and it feels like an echo of the beginning of the movie. And of course, Nomi and Paloma are trying to like save him, but also like fight Safine, and it was. Well, it was like a juggling act that scene. Yeah, yeah. It 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 made me think of uh oh, I can't remember if it was 
Casino Royale or Quantum of Solace when they're in Vienna underwater and, and Eva Green's character drowns. It's it's interesting. There are so many things uh, in in this film, uh, No Time to Die, that that just seem to be, if not quoting directly, at least hearkening some of the ideas or cinematography from so many other Bond films. You you could really watch it carefully and list them all. And uh, th that'd be a fun read, actually, because there's a lot of it in this film. Yeah, I kind of would like to see if there's ever been a Bond film that tried to include parallels to every single film that preceded it. I'm not sure if there has oh, yeah. been. Yeah, it, it, if there has been, maybe it's this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be pretty subtle, not not as overt yeah. as having Bond like go skiing down a mountain, and you, you'd be like, oh, that's obviously like that Roger Moore movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that scene and and uh, he goes over the ledge and you're like he's dead oh no wait he's wearing a parachute that is of the british flag the union jack of course iconic right yeah <laughs> do you have a favorite james bond movie uh i would say um probably goldfinger 1964 the third one of the series just because it's got uh, an obsessive villain and uh, a lot of the stuff was starting to take shape. The this, this stuff that's on the bingo card that we want to check off every film. A lot of the stuff we saw for the first time in Goldfinger and so much of it was new, but they, they got it right so quickly. You know, just two years after Dr. No, the first one, which was low budget and really does not hold up that well, you know, but Goldfinger holds up. So, yeah, that's uh, I'll have to say that's my favorite by far. Do you have a favorite James Bond actor? Uh, I'm going to, uh, similar answer, I'll, I'll say Sean Connery just because I love the old school stuff. You know, by the end, he was losing his touch and, you know, he was wearing terry cloth short shorts and some of the, sign of, <laughs> the signs of the times were creeping into the film and it, it just, you know, n not everything was great throughout the entire Connery stretch, but uh, from Russia with Love in 63, Goldfinger, and even Thunderball in 65. I I think those are great. So I, I would answer Sean Connery. But if if you were to, you know, pin me down and say, all right, not counting Sean Connery, who would it be? I think I would say Daniel Craig, if I couldn't say Sean. I think uh, he's done a lot for the franchise. And, and it's not just him as the actor, you know, with Casino Royale for the first time ever, 2006, and it blows my mind when I watch the old films. There's no cinematography in the old films. There are actors and there's a screenplay. The The lighting is often bright and white and, you know, there's day for night shooting and all the way through the 80s, you know, th there's no impressive cinematography. But starting with Casino Royale in, in 06, I mean, I remember being pinned down to my theater seat. I mean, every piece of music, piece of lighting, camera movement revolved the, the motivations of the actors in the scene and where the where the story was going. That blew me away. So it's hard for me to not like Daniel Craig because he brought that to the series it, along with the production team. And so Daniel Craig's Casino Royale on up to the film we're talking about today. It's uh, there will be there. They can't turn back. I mean, there's that level of cinematography quality that we expect now, you know. Yeah, I kind of wish that Casino Royale had come out in 2007 so we could be like, oh, it came out in 2007, but <laughs> alas. 
they missed it by a year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would have been like the 45th anniversary of the Eon films. Like that would have been cool, but yeah. Yeah. I, I love Sean Connery as Indiana Jones's dad. And yeah, I did enjoy his take on James Bond. Um, I remember when I originally marathoned all those movies, I remember thinking Roger Moore was my favorite. I don't know why, but mm, okay. he was. And I think Connery and Moore have actually each been in seven James Bond movies, if you include uh, Never Say Never Again, which is interesting. That's correct. Seven apiece. That's right. Yeah. 007 apiece. <laughs> I love that that you have a fondness for the Roger Moore uh, Bond because, you know, there is a debonair thing, uh, a dashing thing that I don't think Daniel Craig has that at all. Connery had it. Lazenby had it for his one film, but Moore perfected it, even though the, the collars were a little wider during some of his movies. You know, Dalton had a little bit of it. Brosnan had it in spades. But there's something about just the the uh debonair chivalrous tough but still you know prim and proper and sharp but very british in the mannerisms and the ways and the speaking i i think that's that's something about more that should not be uh overlooked and uh so yeah i dig that you're you're like not afraid to say yeah i, I like roger Moore. that's awesome <laughs> yeah i can't really say why i liked him but it's just something that i remember thinking so i don't know if things would change if i rewatched all the films now but <laughs> they've had really good actors as james bond yeah yeah so this kind of relates to a cameo that's in this movie um but uh for years i've liked imagining that all the different james bond actors changing is because james bond is a time lord um i don't know if you've ever seen doctor who or familiar uh, yeah, with yeah. <laughs> oh i love that yeah yeah play play that out keep going yeah because it, it you totally could uh, make that argument right yeah because um time lords can regenerate so they change their faces and timothy dalton actually played a time lord named rassilon in a doctor who special called the end of time so whoa that to me like in my head confirmed whoa maybe james bond is a time lord and in no time to die there's this really subtle cameo in the background where, where they're like in the streets and there's a police public call box and you see jodie whittaker walking out and she's the current doctor who so it's like <laughs> this is the same universe maybe james bond is a dude time lord. oh my gosh all right, I'm going to watch for that. Somehow I missed that, but uh, and you're sure that was her? Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it was so that, definitely that, her. Oh, man. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and it's very really weird to think about because it's like, I don't know, maybe Daniel Craig could be like the earliest incarnation and then he has to go back in time, become Sean Connery, and then like you have On Her Majesty's Secret Service and it's kind of like he'd have to do diamonds or forever knowing that he loses his wife and then regenerate into George Lazenby and knowing what's going to happen. And it makes it all the more tragic. All right. You have to write this. Uh, I, that's an article that I think will go viral. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it, man. It's great. <laughs> go write this James Bond fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was a, <laughs> I really appreciated that little, cameo there just fuel for the 
Whovians who might be watching. <laughs> it it makes sense. I love it. So, <laughs> so there's this big showdown uh, with Safin, and he kind of has the upper hand on Bond for a moment. So Nomi has to like come to the rescue, and she's really good at holding her own. Like there are moments where he does get the upper hand, and it's like, oh no, I don't know if Nomi will survive. But then she like recovers and. Like, what did you think of this whole interaction? Well, I thought for, they didn't do this, but I, I thought that um, it was going to be a classic kind of uh, leave Bond to die. And then the villain walks away rather than watches him die, <laughs> which means, of course, Bond escapes. And they, I thought they were going that direction, but but they didn't. But I think it helped show that, you know, and maybe this is what they were trying to do, show that. James Bond is, you know, can get hurt. He can get his, his butt kicked. He can, you know, have to question his own ability to be as good of an agent as he once was. You know, I, I thought I thought that was a, a pivotal uh, moment. Yeah. And of course, um, Safin has to have like these final words before he's like taken down. And he talks about you may destroy me. But the mask will live on. Everyone wears a mask. And it was just so <laughs> over the top. And I loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, it made me think of the Incredibles. Um, you know, if, if everyone's a, a superhero, nobody's a superhero. You know, I, I think when, when the bad guys have their big lines at the end of a movie that leave you with something to think about, um, I, I, I thought I thought it was it was it was well written and it makes me wonder um about the next few films and even you know even though Safin uh I don't know how they would write this if if he is still alive like maybe the maybe the mask will carry on somehow you know it, it'll be interesting to see how they continue this on since they've started doing that again Yeah cuz they're like fighting in this like lab that has many levels and he falls down a chasm so i don't know if he like survives or not but he could be onto something like someone else could carry on with that mask and uh, i actually forgot to mention how like the mask is something that haunts um madeline because like years before this she encountered safine at like some sort of opera and he like showed her the mask and she psychoanalyzed him and he felt offended by that and that's kind of why he's like fixated on ruining her life and bond's life i which i think is pretty strong writing i mean it it makes sense for his motivation you know yeah for sure so yeah i'm not sure like if he's alive or not it'd be pretty cool if they brought him back in a believable way but again i don't Mm -hmm. know how believable it is for him to survive that fall yeah, yeah. I I think they could because um if they brought back Christopher Waltz's Blofeld, you know, it's I, I and I think they're smart to do that. Um when we had a completely different storyline and villain every year for a couple decades there, I I think we lost something about what makes a Bond film a Bond film. So I I, I can't get enough of this uh, Bechter Blofeld stuff and um yeah, I, I could I could see the Safine uh, division 
of of evil, you know, continuing on. If he does somehow survive, you know, they'll explain it. I can, I can, I can buy it. And and you know, that was one thing about the mask that they they got right up to the tippy toe line, but they didn't cross it. And had they crossed it, I would have been pissed because um, we we do expect a certain amount of reality in these films, you know. I mean, gadgets are cool, and they're, it's the highest, best technology and and weaponry and all that stuff. So, you know, there's some fantasy kind of over-the-top stuff with lasers or whatever. But um, if the mask gives, you know, like DC superhero powers, then <laughs> that would have... That would have pissed me off. Almost as bad as when they put the uh, the GPS tracking blood stuff in Daniel Craig a few films ago. I, I was so pissed. I'm like, really? Like anywhere in the world, what you just put in his blood through a syringe is going to transmit a signal to satellites and let M know where he's at as well as his vitals. I, I was so pissed about that. That was too much. <laughs> Well, speaking of the gadgets, what was your favorite gadget in No Time to Die? I love the simplicity of the earbuds when he opened the case. You know, I mean, it, it's like the old films when he would open the cigarette case, you know, and it it looked like I don't know how product placement stuff works with Apple. But um, the fact that, you know, I, I love Apple products, but a lot of people think of Apple as an, an evil empire. So. The fact that they had Safine using AirPods throughout the film and, uh, you know, when James switched them out with the, the one Q provided with the explosive AirPods, I, I thought that was great. Yeah, because I think I've heard this thing where if a character uses this company's products, then they're not a villain. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> I, so I'd have to look into that, see whether this decide to subvert that like maybe they change their minds or whatever to throw people off but either way it was a really genius device that they threw in there what was your favorite uh, my favorite would have to be the back scratcher like it like it just looks like an unassuming <laughs> back scratcher that bond would use but as like tranquilizer darts that fire out of it and <laughs> Like it's that ridiculous, was, but it's like it works, you know? Yeah. And I love the telescoping feature, how it's stretched out. <laughs> that was, oh, that's great. Yeah. He could like <laughs> stretch it out to use it as a cane if he wanted to. You know, I'll be honest. I was really upset uh, when John Cleese stopped being Q, but um, I like Ben Wishaw. I, I think as a young Q, the the computer geek side of it too, um, I think he's a good quartermaster. Do you like him? Yeah, I really like him. Um, didn't they kind of make fun of how young he was when he first appeared in these newer movies? Like, was that a thing or am I misremembering? No, I think you're right. It's like they, they had to address it. And uh, yeah. yeah, there was a line. Yeah, that was good. Maybe yeah. Q is a Time Lord too. <laughs> 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 or... He could be a Q from Star Trek, the omnipotent beings from some other dimension or whatever it was. I'm loving your crossover ideas. This is it's so good. <laughs> John Cleese will always be Sir Lancelot to me from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Don't make me taunt you a second time. <laughs> Yeah, whenever I think of King Arthur, that's the main depiction of King Arthur 
that I think of. Like that's <laughs> what my mind goes to first when I hear about King Arthur mythology. <laughs> so you can thank my dad for showing me Monty Python and the Holy Grail as a kid. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I haven't talked to your dad about uh, Python before, but that makes sense to me that he would love Python and introduce Python to, to, to you at oh, a yeah, young he, age. He loves That's it. so great. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. So when you, when you read up on like real King Arthur stuff, do you hear like uh, coconuts in your head in the background? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like the only other King Arthur things I've watched are like, I've seen Excalibur, which is like around 1980, I think. I vaguely remember watching that at some point. But oh, the, yeah. But the other thing is Shrek the Third with like a young King Arthur and like Shrek is trying to convince him to rule the kingdom. So, yeah, <laughs> I think that movie gets too much flack, to be honest. But Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And I think Eric Idle plays Merlin the Magician in that one, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. And John Cleese plays Fiona's dad. So, yeah. Yeah. I love John Cleese. Yeah. Faulty Towers is a great show. <laughs> yes. I love that show so much. I love Faulty Towers. Yeah. I laugh out loud watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, at the end of No Time to Die, we get this resolution. Bond feels like he's at peace and M is like, you can retire if you want, or you can come back, your choice. Just give it a few days and think about it. And uh, he has like this little talk with Nomi. Bond is like, you know, I never asked what your double O number was. And uh, at this point, she reveals it and she, she smiles. And it's like, I knew what was coming, but it was, she was like, double O seven. And then Bond smiles and then it cuts to credits. <laughs> So does that mean he's going to be the new M? I have so many questions. Yeah, I don't know. Because like M throughout this movie seemed like he was like getting tired and like he felt ready to just retire. Like he jokes about it, but I'm not sure if that's what will happen. I think it would be really cool for James Bond to be the new M and Nomi to be the new 007. So mm -hmm. it kind of leaves us on this little cliffhanger type of thing. It's like, well, where are they going to go next? And I really appreciate this, like, especially if they go the Nomi direction. Because, like, you know, James Bond, we're used to him being invincible, but it would be nice if we could, like, move to, like, a new character sort of taking on the mantle rather than worry about recasting, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I would be down for that. I know in the uh in in the James Bond Facebook pages uh communities there there's been a lot of talk about um how it's wrong how Ian Fleming never would have made changes like that. Um some of the changes and genders of some of the characters, you know, are one thing, but um I I would disagree with that crowd. I I I'm with you. I I think there's that could be really interesting and maybe it's time to kick off a new era you know so so that would mean no time to die is kind of like a, a bookend from the stretch starting with 2006 casino royale you know it 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 would open up a whole new direction with some continuity too yeah i i'm i'm going to be uh i am intrigued but i'm i'm just i can't wait to see what they do next 
Yeah, like it'd be a new character taking on the mantle and they could bring back Daniel Craig for just a few scenes as them, like less screen time. So it wouldn't be like they wouldn't have to worry too much about scheduling, I would think. And like you could let this new character be the face of the franchise for several films from here on out, at least. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see it. All right. So with that, I guess we'll go into final thoughts. Uh, What were your overall thoughts on the film and score out of 10? So overall thoughts, I think uh, Daniel Craig, I think he left on a high note. I think the action, some of the stuff that he uh, has made his own, uh, it was there. It, it, it was great. Um, the, the dialogue, um, you know, the, the writing of the dialogue was stronger than I've seen in, in a while. And the, some of the subtleties were there. My bingo card was halfway checked. Even, uh, you know, with the DB5 car coming back, not the DB10. And, uh, you know, so many things were there and there were so many moments that I had no idea what was happening or what was about to happen or had to make sense of it. You know, 10 minutes later when they explained a thing, you know, I wasn't sitting there knowing exactly what was going to happen, which we've all done with many Bond films. So overall, I would give this uh, an eight out of 10 and that's i haven't given an eight since uh 2006's casino royale nice this was probably my favorite out of these reboot movies since casino royale like i was just really into it and it's weird for me to say because i feel like i've been kind of a passive james bond fan like i'd watch the movies but i wouldn't feel as immersed into them as like other people would be Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so i wouldn't follow all the news on it as much but this one really made me want to like go back and rewatch some of them so i guess for that reason i would probably give it 8.75 out of 10 i think this could be a nice new direction for the franchise and i hope they follow up on that promise i think it could be really good going forward nice nice all right so uh coffee shaken not stirred sorry i just had to throw that in there before i forget (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna have to start using that i love it yeah (laughs) so thank you for being on this episode where can people find your stuff like bond with coffee and whatnot Oh, great. Thanks for asking. Uh, there's a YouTube video version of it. Um, uh, we also put the video versions out on our Facebook page. Uh, please follow us there. But uh, the podcast, the straight audio, it's on uh, Google Podcasts and iTunes and all uh, Stitcher, all the normal places. Yeah, I see it's on Apple. I'm like subscribed to it on Apple Podcasts as well. Oh, cool. Thanks for subscribing. Yeah, I watch the videos whenever they're in my feed, but I don't always know when they're up. So it's good that I, like, I subscribe to the Apple feed so that I know when they're up and I could just go and watch a video. Ah, excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. I absolutely love this podcast. And man, I love your ideas about time travelers and, and some of the other elements that uh, I have never thought thought about before uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you some of these you should write as an article they're gonna go viral i love your ideas yeah i gotta make it all canon <laughs> yeah 
As for my plugs, uh, listeners can find my writing at stephenshinder.com. I have a fantasy horror comedy novel called Lemons and Like Rain, which is available on Amazon. You can follow me at Stephen Schinder on Twitter and Instagram and Stephen Schinder Storytelling on Facebook. And if you want to get in touch with this podcast, you can email delayedreplaypodcast at gmail.com. Send in your feedback, your thoughts on the films that have been discussed, and we might read your thoughts in a delayed reply segment. There hasn't been one yet, so be the first. <laughs> cool. And the next movie that will be talked about is Free Guy. And without further delay, have a good day. You are wrong, you know. <sighs> Where are you? Wrong about what? You said Malik was in Mr. Nobody, but you were thinking of Mr. Robot. Oh, well, I mean, I guess I had Doom Patrol on the mind. You know, there's a villain, Mr. Nobody, and there's Robot Man, and Timothy Dalton was is in that show too. You know, season two hype, but who are you? What are you? And are you all in my head? We are very much physically in this world. What? Can, can you say that a bit louder? We are physically in this world. Because sometimes I feel like I see you and you're in the shape of a cow or a bull, but that's not what you really are, are you? You say you're the cow, but I don't think that's what you really mean. Think of it as an acronym. Acronym for what? Just think back. The clues are there in that previous episode. Oh, what, so now I have to re-listen to hours of myself talking? Why don't you just come out and reveal what you are and what you want? More to be revealed next time. Next time, I want answers now.